Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. We're going to start this morning with just a little overview of what to expect in this study before we break into our time of discussion. Uh, So I want to just let you know that we started a pattern of Bible study three years ago as the women of TBC, um, attempting to get a big picture view of God, a big picture story of the Bible. It's a story about God, right, from start to finish. He's the main character, whether we are in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether we are in the creation or the fall, which we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament talking about, or in the redemption that we have in Christ. All roads lead to God's glory in his son, Jesus, and in his church. So this year, we are studying the conquest books of the Bible. I'm really excited about it. This fall, we are studying Joshua and Judges. And then I hope you will stay with us to the spring because we will be complementing this study with the book of Ephesians. Both of these books work well together uniquely to help us to see Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And so I want to encourage you to stay with us all year. We are going to be starting promptly this year at 9 a.m., at 9.30 a.m., sorry. (laughs) Woo! I'm out of sorts. 9.30. We will start promptly, and we're going to start every every time together with a a song of worship and prayer, and we'll launch straight into our discussion. In lieu of announcements like I've done in the past, I'm going to have a rolling slide of announcements going before study and after study. So if you miss them at the beginning, stay after and see what's coming up. Um, come early. I really encourage you to come. From between 9 and 9.30, we'll have snacks set out. It'll be a great time to fellowship with one another, with people at other tables than the ones that you're sitting at now. It's just a great time of fellowship, so come early. The doors for, chil- for our children's program open at 9 as well, so you can drop your kids off and get over here in plenty of time. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about the study and how it is set up structurally. Um, the very first order of importance in our time together is your personal Bible study. I have this as number one because it is, in fact, the most important. So I hope that all of you have a book. We are going to be using this book um, for the first 10 weeks together, Joshua, All God's Good Promises by Kathleen Nielsen. And then we will be doing a one-week overview of the book of Judges. And that homework is going to be taken from Nancy Guthrie's book, the Son of David Seeing Jesus in the Historical Books. And it's in that resource and discussion guide on your table. Everybody needs to grab one. There's 10 on every table. This is yours to keep. I I hope you brought a binder or folder or something that you can put it in. In this guide, uh, you have some additional resources that I want to highlight really quickly. Um, The first one is a list of the attributes of God that we will be looking for in the books of Joshua and Judges. That's something that I hope that you will refer to quite regularly in your personal Bible study time. And then there's lots of maps, um, things that you might want to refer to a little bit deeper as you get deeper into your personal study. And then you have that homework for judges in there. So don't lose this. You don't have to bring it every week. You're welcome to because it will have the discussion questions that your table leaders are going to be going through. So you're welcome to bring it, but you don't have to. It's, it's mostly for your personal study time. So be sure 
Be sure to grab that before we leave. Um, I want you to know that what we are engaging in is called inductive Bible study. And our study guide does the work for us, but what inductive Bible study does is it moves us from a specific observation about the text of Scripture into a more general um, application into our lives. And it does that by following three unique steps. And we don't have to think too hard about these because our Bible study guide, the questions that you will be going through, are going to be taking you through these steps. But I just want you to know what they are because that's why we are studying a book like this. Um, so it starts off with observation of the text. So I know this sounds crazy, but I really want you to read all of the book of Joshua, every word. So if you can't get to the homework questions at the very minimum, please read the text before you come to study each week. That will be incredibly helpful. After we read and observe what the text says, we want to ask some additional questions to ask, what does the text mean? And this is different from what does the text mean to me? We recognize that meaning is determined by the author and discovered by the reader of any text of scripture. And so we're digging in and the questions are gonna force us to dig in to try to determine what did this mean when it was written down. And it's only after we discover that meaning that we can apply that meaning, the original meaning, that we can apply that into our lives generally. So that's the, that's the order and the kind of the, the rhythm that our study is gonna be going through. So next, we start with personal study. I know that this thing is going to struggle. Come on. We're just going to leave it there. Oh, there we go. Okay, so personal study is of utmost importance. Secondly, we want to join together an inter intergenerational table discussion. We will spend about an hour each week discussing together what God has taught you during your time of personal Bible study. I want you to wrestle with all the topics that this book is going to bring up, and it's going to bring up a lot. I want you to wrestle with those, with people who look at the text from a different angle than you do, that maybe have a different perspective. And it's only then when we come and discuss together from different ages and stages of life that we get a more complete and holistic understanding of Scripture. And so we're trusting that the Spirit is going to lead us is going to guide us into all truth. And he does that by coming together with other believers to study. Um, so this is of utmost importance. Finally, we conclude with a lecture. And it goes last because it really is the least important of these three movements. And I wanna say that clearly, and I hope that you understand that. If you have to miss something, I want you to miss the lecture each week. There's really no substitute to doing the work of personal study and then talking about it with your sisters to really um, facilitate learning. Okay, so that is what I, what I value the most. We want to bring excellence to the teaching, and I hope that we do, but it really is the least important thing. We're gonna be sending you every week a video link of the teaching time, so that's something that you can catch up on if you have to leave early. And then I'm super excited to tell you about something new that we have. Um, we have a Women of TBC podcast, and you are welcome to subscribe to that on Apple Podcasts or on Google Play, or you can go to the website and you can listen to it there. Each week we'll have the audio version of the teaching on the, on the podcast, so you can catch up with the teaching that way as well. 
Now, I'm excited about a team of teachers that are going to be doing these lectures for you, and each week I am going to introduce them one by one. But today I just want to introduce them as a group and ask them to stand as I call their name. This team, um, I believe that God brought this team together for a very specific purpose. We're from different ages and stages of life as well. Um, and I'm excited for us to value one another's voice and hear what God has to teach us through each other. So our team will be Karen Smith, who was leading our worship this morning. Just stand for a minute. Shelly Wood, Rhonda Eggleston, and Karen Jennings, and myself. So I am really excited about these ladies. You you can sit down. I'm excited about working with this team. You don't have to applaud. It's okay. They don't want applause. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited for what God has to teach us. So let's, um, let's go to the Father in prayer, and then we will launch into our discussion this morning. God, we are so thankful that you have brought us together at this time and at this place for your purposes. And God, our hearts are hurting, and we're grieving together as a family. And we know, Father, that you're a good Father, and that you wrap us in your arms and you comfort us in ways that we don't even know how to ask for. And so we just are depending on you today. It's good to be together. It's good to grieve together. And we just, <clears throat> we just ask you, Father, to fill us to overflowing with your spirit as we talk at our tables and get to know one another. Would you just give us an extra measure of grace and mercy today? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One more little word before you jump in. You can see that our room is jam-packed full, right? And it's going to be hard to hear. Um, So I want to encourage you, if you can, to lean in as much as you can today around the table so that we can keep our voices kind of at a conversational tone. When you lean back, everybody starts yelling louder and louder, and it gets harder and harder to hear. Hopefully, we'll have the rooms set a little with a little bit more room next week, but we're going to just do the best that we can today, okay? So discussion leaders, it's 9.48. We're going to take a break at 10.45, okay? We'll have a 15-minute break before, discuss, or before the lecture at 11, okay? So I'll give you a five-minute warning, but I'm going to turn it over now to your table leaders, and we're going to get to know each other. Okay, I want to invite everybody to come find your seat. I love hearing all this great conversation. Let's turn me down just a little bit, Victoria. I love seeing you talk with people at different tables. And I want to take this time to just encourage you, if you know a lot of people in this room, would you help me by introducing other people to to the people that you know? Um, It can be very intimidating in a room this size. And I'm excited to see that we have more and more connections every year that we do this. All right, I'm going to start us with a prayer as everyone is coming in, and then we will jump into our lesson. Father, God, we just praise you and thank you uh, for the ways that you are already knitting us together as sisters and friends at our tables. God, we're praying that you would continue that work as we um, fellowship with one another in the room during our breaks and at the beginning of class. Would you just help us, Father, to get to know one another, to know each other by name, to um, just grow in our love for one another as family We're so thankful, Father, that we have one another. 
We're thankful for this book of the Bible that we are about to jump into an introduction of, um, this book of Joshua. We ask you, Father, to teach us, to, to show us something new, to reveal yourself to us in a, in a new way. We look forward to what you will teach us together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am in a season of transition. I'm going to try to get through with the things that I have to say without crying, but I just don't know if I can. <laughs> I said goodbye to this sweet boy, my son Jacob, in Boston two days ago, and I still feel really tender about it. Change is hard, right? And fear of the unknown is always in tension with faith. My head tells me that my son is happy and that God has good things in store for him, but my heart misses him already. And I know that there will be struggle involved for him. He will get homesick from time to time and face challenges like he's never faced before. So I am wrestling with God, struggling to trust him, that he is able to give Jacob what he needs when he needs it. Well, our church family is also in a season of transition. We also said a painful goodbye this week. And change is hard. And fear of the unknown is always in tension with faith. Our head tells us, right, that Gary is happy and healed and whole, but our hearts miss him already. And we feel that searing pain. We struggle with the unknown for his family. We know that they will get homesick from time to time and face challenges like they've never had before. So we are wrestling with God and struggling to trust him together and to remain joyful in our hope. Well, it's no coincidence that we are about to study a big transition for God's people, the nation of Israel. Two years ago, we studied Genesis, where God took another Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and after an all-night wrestling match, changed his name. Remember this from Genesis 32, 28. God said to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome well, Jacob's 12 sons indeed became the nation of Israel, and they certainly continued to struggle with God in really big ways. They struggled to trust God as slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And as we studied last fall in Exodus, they struggled to trust God even as he delivered them through the Red Sea and into the desert where they were homeless and hungry. They struggled to trust God to provide for their needs and to give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. They wrestled with their own thoughts. Remember how they longed to go back to the comfort of slavery rather than to face the unknown of the promised land? In fact, their lack of trust forced them to wander an additional 40 years until an entire generation died, unable to enter the land of Canaan. We left them last fall at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34. I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. We left them with perhaps 
their greatest struggle as a nation, the death of their leader. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 34, verses 7 through 12. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel." So like Gary, Moses was a really tough act to follow. God put his spirit of wisdom in Joshua to lead this next generation and Caleb, we have to remember him, to take possession of the land. They have certainly struggled with God like God predicted their name would mean. But this is finally the time of the overcoming. This is Israel's great conquest. Remember, God had made promises to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, when he promised to bless Abraham's descendants, to make them into a nation, and to give them a land that, that they would possess. And God always keeps his promises. So conquest will finally be theirs in this book of Joshua, but they're going to have to fight for it. They're going to have to fight physically and spiritually and emotionally. And like them, we struggle and we wrestle with God. We know that he has set us free, but we often opt for the slavery of worry and doubt. I wrestle to trust God with my family, with my son's future. We wrestle with death and disease and the awful separation from loved ones on this side of heaven. And I guarantee you that we will wrestle with concepts in this book, in these, both of these books this semester. And we'll wrestle with whether or not God is a good and a righteous judge. But I want you to know that we will overcome together as we see how these books point us to Jesus. Now, do you think Israel will do any better at keeping the law under Joshua than they did under Moses? Just to remove all doubt, no, they will not. They always think they can. They always say, yes, we will. We'll do everything that you commanded us, God. But they can't in their own strength. They need a savior. And so just like, jo like Moses pointed us to that prophet like Moses who would come later, Jesus Christ, Joshua will also point us to Jesus in amazing ways. In fact, the names Joshua and Jesus are the exact same name in the Greek language. And while we will be tempted to see Joshua as our main character in these books, the main character in Joshua and in Judges is God, revealing himself to us in Christ. 
Soon we will meet this very interesting uh, person in the text, the commander of the army of the Lord. He is in fact the pre-incarnate God. And he's the one who is going to lead Joshua and Israel into victory. And I'm excited for us to see that. So let's dive into a very brief introduction of the book. This is something that we do every semester. We always want to ask just a few basic context questions of any book of the Bible that we study so that we get a sense of where we are headed. Um, So we want to ask this first question together, who wrote the book of Joshua? Well, it seems kind of obvious, but the truth is that we just don't know. Early historians attributed the book to Joshua, but most people now agree that it was probably written much later. Maybe some of the text was written in Joshua's lifetime, but most of it was edited and written down much later after Joshua's death. Well, to whom was it written and for what purposes? Well, the book is written to ancient Israel. The stories would have been told orally from its earliest arrival in Canaan and finally written down so that every subsequent generation of God's people to this present day would know this story from a unique theological perspective. Well, when was it written? There's always controversy about when any book is written. And the the thing that I really want you to know about this one is that it's written later than the events that are written in it actually occurred. It likely was written at the late second or the early first millennium BC. So thousands of years ago, after the events actually happened. So keep that in mind. Because of that, we want to talk about the style that it was written in. This is a historical narrative, but it's a very specific type of narrative. It's an epic. That's a story of a nation engaged in matters of state, including warfare. And it's a remembered history. It's not a chronological history. So it doesn't always follow the kind of timeline that we're expecting of a book like this. Rather, it aims to highlight very important contrasts to the nation of Israel. Um, A feature of epics that we're going to get very familiar with very soon is the inclusion of epic catalogs or lists. And there are just so many lists in this book. We're going to be looking at lists ad nauseum. Um, And Joshua (laughs) is no exception to this. It's extensive because it's a, a historical chronicle for the nation of Israel. So these lists are very important. They might be boring to us, but they're very, very important to to the original audience. Well, finally, the last question we wanna ask um, of any book of the Bible is what are some of the themes that we're going to be encountering as we study this book together? And I thought that the Bible Project, a, a resource that I just love, I thought that their video on Joshua did a great job of introducing themes. And so we're going to spend some time this morning watching it. It's about eight minutes, so I want you to settle in. But it's going to help us to see where we're headed in the weeks to come. And it's going to give us some context, um, some even greater context, some questions that we might be bringing to the text. So let's watch this together and then I will bring us back. The book of Joshua, 
let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham and then his family became the people of Israel who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions so that the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people. And so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups, and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai, and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. 
And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practice child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed, I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir, but then later in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. 
Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. We are, we are actually going to watch the video on Judges when we get to judges because that will answer that question, what is Israel going to do? It's not going to be pretty. Um, I want to um, conclude today by talking about one more theme that I see in the book of Joshua. And it's a principle, and it goes something like this. God offers rest to his people, but we have to fight for it. I want to remind you that perfect rest began in the Garden of Eden, but we were separated from that rest by the fall. We studied that extensively a couple of years ago. The work of mankind became burdensome and our hearts became deceitful. And so God chose a people, Israel, and desired to restore rest to them in Canaan, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And God's holiness demanded complete obedience and a fierce fight to take possession of the land. But no matter how hard they tried in their own strength, the people failed. It's because Canaan was never intended to be the final rest. It's only in Jesus Christ, friends, that God has restored ultimate lasting rest to his people. But we have to strive to enter that rest. Remember in Hebrews chapter four, which we, we read last semester, when it was speaking of all that's better for us in Jesus, it said in verse eight, for if Joshua had given them, that's us, rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And then in verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest. And it's ironic because we fight the war in our minds, in the spiritual realm, not to earn our way into that rest, but rather following the one who sacrificially led the way in. I like how Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. He said, but thanks be to God, <clears throat> who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Gary and Bev and their family, they fought with hope and with joy that we have in Christ for these past six years. And they overcame their fear and their doubt Gary has followed Jesus into perfect rest, and his family is now experiencing a peace that passes all understanding. And then, amazingly, God is using them and us as the church to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. That's good news. That's good news that we get to join in 
today. So I can assure you guys, Joshua and Judges is going to challenge us. The violence and the destruction, the requirement of the people to kill and destroy, and ultimately the depravity of mankind are going to be difficult. We will wrestle with these questions together. I can assure you that we won't always understand that these books will grow our faith in God. We'll struggle to see how he is, in fact, a good and just God, merciful and kind, and how his ultimate plan is to take the destruction required by sin upon himself in the form of Jesus. There are things about leaving my baby in a, in a strange city far away that just seem wrong. And saying goodbye to Gary just seems wrong too. But we have to ask ourselves, is God sovereign over all these things? Is he good? Has he ushered Gary into his presence happy and whole? Is he sufficient to meet the needs of Bev and the family? Is he present in us, the church, to minister to them? Absolutely, yes, he is. Do we have to understand all the whys to know that God is in control? No, we don't. So I wanted us to close today by reading together out loud the mantra that Gary and his family have proclaimed all these six years as they have wrestled with cancer and ultimately overcome. So let's read this out loud together and then we'll pray. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. God, we do claim these words. We rejoice in you. Though there are things about these separations that we don't understand, we, we declare together that you are good and that you are holy and that you are just and that you are loving and kind and merciful, that you're a father who adores us, that you're a, the God of all compassion and that you will continue to pour your compassion out on us as a church family and on the DeSalvo family as we walk these days ahead together. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. I want to encourage you, if you have children in the children's program, to get there quickly and pick them up. Everybody else, be sure to leave your name tag in your box.